0: Let's, um, let's, sorry, There's too many papers here. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come before you and as we uh, look into your word, um, that you would, um, Lord, your word is the everlasting word that does not change with time and culture. It rises above all because it's, it's the eternal truth. And so, Lord, as we look into this portion of your word, that you will speak to us and allow us to really consider the implications and what it's really saying so that we may indeed be the doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you know, one thing that I'm realizing as I am reading through the New Testament, I think many of us, hopefully you guys have been keeping up with it, is, you know, what I thought that I knew um, I realized that I didn't really know uh, or I didn't know to the extent that I should be. I should know. And also there are some new findings uh, in many of these passages. Um, I think sometimes as I read, um, like there's a word that just kind of pops out or maybe a phrase. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't even know that it was there. Or, oh, wait a minute, it, this word or this phrase kind of comes at me with a different, it sheds different light, right? And just catch it, these things catch me off uh, off guard. And I think part of it is because I am so familiar with the the NIV, New International Version, because that's the version that I read growing up. But now that I'm reading it uh, in ESV, I think there are some words and phrases that are, I think, kind of new to me. And so I think that part of it is that, but I think um, some of these things, but the new findings. Um, and new discoveries, um, because uh, it really, they really alter my understanding at times, uh, and my assumptions. You know, at the beginning of a passage, usually I think to myself, you know, say something like this, right, aha, I know this story, I know a parable like this, so I know what it's saying, and then I realize it's not what I thought it was. And so this passage is one such example. You know Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as synoptic gospels, uh, the gospels because they are they include many of the same stories, uh, often in a similar sequence and in similar wording. Some of it is actually identical, right? Uh, and now we are into John. If you are keeping up with uh, the New Testament reading that we are doing, and you would notice right away that actually the content of John is different from, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Because, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, as, you, as we've been going through, there are a lot of similar stories. So sometimes we get confused. Oh, okay, they, are they talking about the same thing? Or we may think that they are talking about the same thing. Um, and today's parable is not the most well-known parables of Jesus. And people confuse this parable with the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And I think that's the parable that most of us are more familiar with because that's a well-known story about you know, the three servants, right, getting like five, two, and one talent. But the talent is a huge sum. It's a fortune, right? And that depending on what they did, you know, that's how the master deals with it. And so it's, it's, it's very similar to, to this parable, but the details And the application of these parables are different. Because uh, in the parable of the talents, the amounts are, as I said, are larger and vary in size. And and there, the master tests the servants for their fitness for larger tasks. Whereas here, the amounts are smaller and they are given the same amount to all 10 servants so it is a different parable and you know usually we think oh it's but it's a similar pa- parable so it must be it must mean the same thing that's what i thought but it is different now the parables are meant to capture the listeners from what is familiar f- familiar to them and then move them to the realm of the unfamiliar. Let me repeat that. So the parable is designed to capture the the listening audience from what is familiar to them and move them to the realm of the unfamiliar. What do I mean? Jesus uses parables to convey spiritual truth that is not familiar to them because these people... They, are, they, don't know, they don't really know the spiritual truths that are new and unfamiliar to the hearers by telling stories, drawing from their customs, their traditions, what is familiar to them. That's what Parable does. So he's trying to convey this uh, deep spiritual truth. But instead of simply just telling them it is what it is, He's using familiar stories that people can ev- immediately identify with. Aha, ah, I, that's really familiar to me. So he's using stories, traditions, customs to convey the deep spiritual truth. That is a function of the parable. So the story, this story, is about a nobleman going away to receive a kingdom for himself. And he's going away to have someone with higher authority than he uh, give him the kingdom, right? And, um, and this a parable actually has a historical background and the familiarity with the original audience, as I said before. Now, as we know, during that time, Israel was ultimately under the rule and authority of of Caesar in Rome. But the Romans, they didn't didn't want too many conflicts, too many revolts just coming up in all over the world, in the the regions that they they occupied and ruled. So the Romans allowed kings in those different regions so that people would be, okay, right? At least we have our own kings. It's almost like a puppet state. So the Romans, they were pretty smart, right? They didn't want to just, like, come down on them too harsh. So they say, hey, they were trying to just, like, use these puppet states and puppet kings and still retain control. So what they did is Rome would recognize them to rule over that particular region. And what they would do is they would affirm their authority, that they are, these are your kings. And the kings who ruled Israel were neither Romans nor Jews at that time. Even though it was in, a, uh, in, a, in the region of Judea, mostly populated by the Jews at that time, their king wasn't Jewish. The first king, from, uh, oh, actually, they were, so, uh, so they, they were uh, Edomians. they were the neighboring like, tribal group, and they were of a family called the Herods. And the first king from this family called himself Herod the Great. Boy, boy, is, is he a mighty guy or what? Right, and the King Herod the Great. Right, and um, so in 40 BC, King Herod, uh, the King, uh, the Herod the Great, he went to Rome to secure for himself the kingship and negotiated with him to uh, to, to become king. In the region of Judea, and then when he died in four BC, one of his sons actually he uh, made this uh, edict where, like, he had three sons, so he just uh, gave out to different regions that he was ruling, and uh, and one of the uh, one of the uh, the sons, three sons, Archelaus, succeeded him in Judea, in the region of Judea. Two other brothers in different regions, and. He was a, this guy, Archelaus, he was one wicked guy, right? And what he did, actually, is uh, when he succeeded him, his father, uh, the late father, the first thing that he did, one of the first things that he's done is on the very first Passover, right? You know, like the Passover is the most important, right, festival and religious uh, observation thing for for the uh, Jewish people at the time. The very first Passover, he slaughtered three thousand Jews. Wow, you think about that, right? Back in those days, there is no such thing as like you know trying to woo people, right? He tried to rule with iron and fist and just kind of try to just put fear in the people that he would rule. So he slaughtered three thousand Jewish, Jewish uh, Jews on the most important day in their history. Obviously, Jews hated him. They just hated his guts, right? They despised him for obvious reasons. And then the time came for Archelaus to go to Rome, far country, to get the official stamp of approval from the from the Rome, from the Caesar. He had to go there to get officially it's like, hey I am, you know, my, uh, my father's son, and let me just rule. I just want your official approval. And when he went to Rome, the Jewish subjects living in Judea, obviously, you know, when they found out that he was going to Rome, they sent a delegation to ask that he not be made king over them. So while Archelaus was appealing before Caesar to give him the right to rule over Judea, the delegation was also plead, pleading with Caesar that they didn't want him to reign over them. Right? So can you imagine that? Both parties is like asking, putting on the request. But in the end, Caesar didn't want to just you know, just rock the ship. So he allowed Archelaus to become king in the region of Judea. Obviously, he, would he be pleased with the, what the Jewish people have done when they sent the delegation all the way to Rome, right? So the original audience would have been very familiar with these events and would have immediately recognized its parallel. Now, here, Jesus is not saying or he's not comparing himself to Archelaus but what he's doing is by using this parable, he's capturing the listeners, uh, uh, the, the interest of the listeners with the familiarity. It's like when when the, the original listeners would listen to, uh, hear this parable, it's like, oh, okay, we remember this. I remember what happened. It's very familiar. There's a like, really striking parallel here. So then, why does Jesus, the question is, why does Jesus tell this parable at this point? What's the point of it? Just as I tell him another familiar story? No. Here's why. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem was nearing its end. In other words, this was his very last trip to Jerusalem. In a matter of a few days, he will be crucified. But as he was talking about the kingdom of God, people thought, that he would set up a magnificent earthly kingdom there. And as the Messiah, when he proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near, what Jewish hearers heard was an immediate establishment of a physical and visible kingdom. In verse 11, it says, as they heard these things, he was, uh, he was uh, talking about the kingdom of God, right? He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So when Jesus was talking about the spiritual, uh, the the kingship and the kingdom of God, what the Jewish hearers once again in their own limited finite mind is that he's going to just basically kick out the heathens, the Romans, and establish this glorious earthly kingdom. And they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The word appear here is something that is on the horizon. Like, you know, when you are on the, you know, because the earth is not flat, but it's, you know, it's round. And so, like, you know, as you are on a ship, uh, on on a a boat, right, at first you're not seeing anything. But as you get closer to the land, slowly you see, right, on the horizon. Something like, you know, faint, but something is showing up. And as you go further in, you see clearly what's, good, what's about to, uh, what's just, what lays before you, some kind of landmark or island, some, some kind of landscape, right? Thing. That's the word that's here. They are just seeing in their mind when Jesus says, Kingdom of God is near, aha, now he's about to just, you know, crush these, you know, godless, you know, just, you know, uh, Romans and establish a kingdom. It'll set us free and we'll become once again. Reimagine, uh, right, the glorious kingdom from, like, the days of, like, David. That's what they were imagining. And they were getting really excited. So that's all their minds. So, uh, and so even when you, uh, so even after the resurrection, right, when you read uh, Acts chapter 1, 6, right, it says this. Can we post that, Josh? So when they had come together, the disciples, this is after resur- Jesus rose from the dead, and still, this is what they, they, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after resurrection, the, in the minds of the disciples the, you know, that's been with him for over three years, still in their mind, the kingdom of God was once again earthly kingdom. You rose from the dead? Wow. Are we doing this, Jesus? You talk about kingdom of God. So are we going to now just crush the Romans and establish the kingdom? And can we be the cabinet members now? See how like they're so thick-headed and so like, you know, they're just so focused on this earthly, physical kingdom. And look, the expectation of the kingdom right around the corner means this full display of kingdom authority and power, and Jesus being the leader, the king, right? So to address this misplaced hope that the followers have, Jesus had to tell them, yes, he is saying the kingdom of God is near, right? But he has to tell them that the full expression of his kingdom authority will not come until he comes back. He was there for the first time. But before he's being ascended into heaven, he had to tell them, guys, what you guys are imagining, okay, it's all delusion, right? You guys are only thinking of earthly things. So I am coming back. That's when you will truly see the full expression of my authority and extent of my kingdom. So he has to explain what he expects them to do in the meantime. Because they had this tunnel vision. So all they thought about, earthly kingdom. Kingdom of God, Jesus says, is the kingdom, just like any other kingdom on earth. How those things can easily like, skew our understanding. I remember like uh, my first trip to, to, to Kenya, Africa. It was, I was in college many, 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 many years ago. And there was a group of, a group of us in a mission team. And this was our very very first time traveling overseas. We were so excited. And maybe we've, I mean, at that time, we didn't even have the, the lion king didn't even come out. But you know, we've known enough where if, when you go to Africa, right, you may see some wild animals like lions or something, right? So that, that was our expectation, right? I guess, uh, I, don't, I didn't really expect it to see it. But anyways, there's one of the sisters, as you were just landed uh, in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, and as we were just being transported, we're just looking out. It's just like, you know, it's like safari, like what we have imagined, right? And all of a sudden, she just explained, there's a lion, there's a lion, right? And we're like, where, 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 where? We looked. But as you were just driving by, it was just like a big uh, brown, like a dog, right? But because the way it was like, you know, just like sitting or something, because in her mind, she was only just looking to see a lion. Where's a lion? Where's a Lion. Lion. And then when she saw this uh, brown, like a uh, four-legged animal, she said, oh, lion, right? That's exactly what these uh, disciples were doing. They were just like so, just like, in, in their mind, it was just all about earthly kingdom. So what Jesus had to tell them is like, guys, snap out of it, right? So here in this, in this um, passage, I see, we see two main points. First is Jesus' authority in judgment and the faithfulness of the disciples. And so these are important topics in light of his approaching and pending departure and eventual return. So the the first point uh, that we see from this parable is his authority, Jesus' authority. Verse 12 says, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. This foreshadows, this verse foreshadows Jesus' reception of the kingdom at the vindication of his resurrection and ascension. Unlike what the disciples were thinking, as they were just uh, approaching Jerusalem, they thought that, He's gonna get it. But actually, what Jesus is saying here is through this parable is that he will indeed come back. While he was away, uh, this nobleman, his interests and plan needed to uh, need to be fulfilled, so he calls ten servants. In verse thirteen. If I can find it, yeah. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minors and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Until I come. You know, uh, uh, one minor at the time uh, was about three months uh, worth of wages, right? So in today's term, what? I guess it depends on how much you guys pay. I don't know, 12, 15,000? I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, so. Uh, so about three months worth wages, right? So it's not a chump change, but it's not a fortune either, right? Like talent, that was a huge fortune, but minus it wasn't like a three months worth uh, of your savings. That's what he gave out to all ten uh, servants, equal amount. Meanwhile, there are subjects who hate him, and they don't want him as king. So they send a delegation as he was traveling to the far country. These uh, people, countrymen, who don't want him as their king, as he's getting that approval from the far country, they send a delegation after him. But despite their protest, he's received his kingdom. He comes back. And what we see is he calls everyone to account as king. Scripture consistently tells us God's judgment comes through his son. John chapter 5, this is amazing, because, like, you know, I was just reading it this past week. I didn't even know this passage was going to come up. But John chapter 5, verse uh, 27, says this. And he has given, the father has given him, son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the, in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, everyone, right? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Throughout the scriptures, it makes it crystal clear that it is Jesus who will come back And he will judge us according to what we've done. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. That means he will set the term of how he would judge every one of us. We don't get to decide what the terms are or how they should be set as king, king of kings he would set the term of how he would hand out judgment to everyone that has ever walked on the face of the earth. Like, you know, even like, these, like the oil prices, right? Of course, all of us want the, the oil prices to be dirt cheap, right? But we don't get to set the term. We don't get to set the price, right? It's really <laughs> depending on the, these like, rich or the oil-producing countries, like OPEC+, and whatever, and, and, and the U.S., they just, you know, they're just, uh, fine, uh, you know, they're just going through back and forth, and then just by demand and, and, and supply, but they will set the, the price. We don't get to set the terms, and that's how it is. In the last day. And he will come back. In glory. In verse fifteen, when he returned, having received the kingdom. When he has received the full authority, when he, when on his return he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. When Jesus returns, as we see in this parable, he will give, uh, he'll call for account. He will reward the faithful servants according to, uh, according to his standard, deal with the unfaithful ones and judge his enemies and it will be decisive it will be final there will be no appeals or process there there is no dissenting views that are allowed at that time jesus in his all of his glory will return one day and that he will we have to give account Of everything that we've done, there's nothing that we can hide. He will see, and we'll probably see a full movie of our lives, right? We'll see the video playing right in front of us, and there's nothing we can do that will change anything at that time. He was given the full authority, and he is coming back. And that's something. One thing uh, that, that this parable makes it very clear. And the second point is our accountability. To him. And here is a compelling thing about this parable: is that you are there somewhere. You are you are in it somewhere. Every one of us, including me, every one of you, is in this parable. Some, according to Jesus, you'll be considered faithful servants. Some of us will be unfaithful servant. Still others will be considered enemies. Depart from me. I never knew you. Every one of us, not just only the people sitting here, but everyone in this world belongs to one of those three. There's no exception. You know, these days, the interest rates are rising like a rocket, right? I mean, it's just like going up like crazy. And everybody's talking about and is fretting that the possibility of a recession. Oh, man, with this like rates being this so high, you know, the, the business, they're going to have a hard time borrowing and all these things. The the credit condition is really tighter, you know. So people are having a hard time securing, you know, uh, even just buying a house even though you want to because the the, the, the loan rates are so high and so people are just fretting the possibility of a recession. Back in the the Greco-Roman world, interest rates were far worse and exorbitant. So only a few people had enough capital to start a business. And those doing business, because there was a lack of competition, they could just easily make a killing, right? And here, two servants, according to this parable, Two servants did well and they were rewarded with further opportunities of service in proportion to their success. What we see here is that these servants, they really cared about the master. They took his charge very seriously with this money, engage in business. So out of their care, and because they loved their master, they understood his intention and what he was, uh, what he was asking for. So they said, "You know what? I'm gonna work. Whatever this uh, money that I've got, out of his, uh, their love for, for, for the master, they would engage in business as they were asked to. And then the parable slows down considerably. And, they, and it gives detailed descriptions of what happens. For the third servant, fear, quote, unquote, fear, at least that's what it's saying, fear kept him from doing anything. Though he knew what his master wanted, because he explicitly said, as he was giving out this minus, he said, engage in business until I return, because I am coming back. So what he did, is he wrapped the money in a handkerchief. And that, that was a really irresponsible way, right? To take care of uh, the money. Because even today, right, the, the, there's, I mean, it's not an economy class, but you know, the real purchasing power, right? Whatever the money that you have, if you, say, you, you, had, a, you had $100, right? What you can buy with $100, but in a, in a rising interest uh, environment that we are in, you in know, a, in a, in a year later, you're not going to be able to find that whatever that you could get now because of this high interest rates, right? Man, so you, you go, I, I still remember the days when like uh, I, I'm really old. So, really like, you know, back in those as McDonald's, two for two Big Macs. I mean, you, when you had like, you know, Pastor Jay on the nose, right? Uh, you know, like those like coupons. Can you imagine getting two Big Macs for $2? Man, those were the days, but nowadays, what well, I, I, I had a sticker shop, right? Uh, the other day I was at, a, not, not McDonald's, yeah, McDonald's, but a few, few, uh, few weeks ago. I was shocked, just like, you have to pay basically 10 bucks, right? To get like any kind of meal deal. I'm like, what? When did it just become so expensive? It's because of the, the rising interest rates, right? So you don't, you don't, if you have cash, you don't just put it under your mattress, right? Because with that, money yeah, you have the $100, but you're gonna purchase much less at a later time, right? So what you do have to, you have to, even now, right, with a high interest rate, you can just put it in a bank, and there is a, you know, way to go about it, but, um, you know, it's beyond the scope of my uh, message, but, you know, you you accrue interest, right? So with rising interest rates, you know, you can at least get some interest so that you will at least not lose that real purchasing power, right? Right. So just putting (laughs) it... Putting it away, socking it away is a really irresponsible way, right? So this implies that the servant was lazy, he was careless, and he did not really care about the cause, his master's cause. He said, engage in business until I come back. But he didn't bother to just take it into the bank or more accurately, lender's table, Because, you know, they would uh, have lenders, and then just, the lender would just, like, function like a bank, where where you get the money, and they would promise a certain interest rate, and they would just lend it out to other people at a higher interest. That's how banking works, right? Um, So, he didn't care about his cause. So, he just sucked it away. He had no excuse. He had no sense of loyalty to his master. Why should he honor his master? With his labor. That's basically what he showed. And his words show that although he's, uh, he's associated with the master, there's nothing that indicates any trust of his master. There's a loving and trusting relationship with the master. And he will be condemned by his own testimony. Verse 22 he said to him, the master said to the, the, the servant, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and, and my coming? I might have collected it with interest. Right? Because when he said, oh, yeah, I was so afraid, So, you know, you're not going to just like, you know, you take things. You're basically a thief. That's what he's charging in a roundabout way to his master. You know, you take what you did not sow, right? You are a thief, right? And I was so afraid of you. You're such a hard and severe man. So I was so afraid of you, I sucked it away. But even his excuse would condemn him. Because if he really knew, if he were, was really convinced that his master was a severe man, he would have at least earned interest by depositing the money because it's a common sense. Oh, I am so afraid. So at least I'm going to just, just take it to the bank. At least I will just earn him the interest. Because otherwise he would be so upset. But he didn't lift the finger. Meaning he did not really believe that himself. It was simply a mere excuse for him about his action. And the master's dealing with the other two actually shows that he's not a harsh man. Because for the first servant, who was the, the the one minor, he earned ten minors. And you know, like that's also very like a uh, nice way that uh, this a humble way that he disguised it as uh, your minor earned. Ten he didn't say, Look, Lord, look, Master, you know, I worked so hard and uh, through my fruitful labor. Here, now, I, got I got you 10 minus. That's not what he said. There is this the servant who earned uh, 10 minus said, Your mina earned 10 more. Same thing with the second uh, servant, Your mina earned 5 more. What does the master do? good and faithful servant he commends them and he allows them to keep all of the minors that they have earned not only that he gives another additional opportunities of service now you rule over I give you authority to rule over ten cities to the first one I give you five cities that you can rule over He was really gracious and generous. He was not a severe man. He was really gracious. They did what they were told to do. And when they did, he commended him. And it gave him the authority to rule over cities that they could not have possibly imagined. They received a warm commendation from their master. So not only did they keep what they have earned, but they also received this amazing opportunity to rule over the cities. Wow, what a generous thing. The wicked servant didn't really know the character of his master at all. Because as as we said in verse 21, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This servant is a picture of a hybrid people. People who are associated with the community had the appearance of being part of the community that Jesus founded. But they have really never ever knew the founder, Jesus, as a source of grace. People that look like, that may look like members of the community, but there is really no knowledge, true knowledge and love for Jesus. I know it's, it's a harsh thing, but there are plenty. In the church. Where they, on the appearance, because they show up on Sunday, they have all the appearance of being a Christian, church member. They may even have the title of being a deacon, elder, what have you. But in the end, in the very core, they're indifferent. They don't really care. There's no desire to honor Jesus or exalt him. If they go through the motions, they follow along, they may speak the language, they act, but there is no desire. They have no knowledge of their master. And what is their end? They end up on the outside with nothing. And nothing is said about the other seven, Maybe we may be wondering, hey, weren't there 10, uh, wait a minute, there were 10 servants, we only talk about three, so what about the other seven? Well, that's beside the point. Because what Jesus is focusing, or the, the parable is concerned with two classes of people, two classes of servants. Those who are faithful to the master's command, and those who are not. That's the only thing that matters. But this parable teaches that everyone is accountable to Jesus one way or another. Those who follow Christ are accountable to serve his cause. and We see that God graciously and generously honors faithfulness. God honors those who honor him. And this makes this parable a call to faithfulness. And also, you know, in, towards the end of the, uh, the 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 parable, right, uh, in verse twenty four, that's something that's like questionable, right? That was just—it's a head scratcher. And he said to the master, said to those who stood by, "Take the minor from him, the, the third minor, uh, the the third servant, and give it to the one who has ten minors." And 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 they said to him, "Lord, he has—I think he said—he already has ten minors." There are little protests. Hey, that's kind of not fair. He already has 10 miners. He's like ruling over 10 cities. Why would you want to give it to him? He already has enough. But the master says in verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What he's talking about is the principle of grace. Once again, that uh, the first servant who earned him 10 minus, he received 10 cities. And on top of that, he was given even more. That's what, how grace works. We don't deserve it. but We just give and give and give to the one who is faithful, the one who, is, who loves, the one who trusts, master, more will be given. He doesn't say, well, you've had enough, right? You've had your fill. So I'm going to turn to other people. No, he's saying, if you love me, if you follow me, if you care about me, right, I will give you good and faithful. You are being faithful, I give even more. You know, it's just in our human nature, we just cannot stand, right, when other people are well. Right? In Korean proverb, it says, it's, it meant basically is saying that man, if your cousin is doing so well, then you get so, oh, man, you just cannot stand his success. That's just human nature. When we see our people that are around us, they're just being promoted, they're doing so well. On the outside, yeah, good for you. But inside, like oh, man, what about me? That, man, you get jealous, envious. That's human nature. But Jesus is saying, "That's not what God is." These people that were standing by, they were like getting really like envious of this one uh, servant who had ten minas. He was given even more. That's not fair, Jesus. It's all about equity. But grace is not about equity. How we live our lives matters to God, and one day he will give his judgment on every single one of us. And there won't, no one will ever escape this. You know, one of the expressions that we keep hearing from popular culture is be true to yourself, be yourself. When it comes to integrity, that makes sense. But also, it also often means that you can and should be led by your own self-interest. Hey, this is me. I am being myself, okay? I'm not going to let anybody tell me who I am. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I set my mind on doing this my way, and that's me. But here's a danger with that kind of thinking. Because accountability to Christ is not a matter of self-interest or self-determination. We are not the standard our, uh, that our life should uh, be measured by. We don't set the agenda. God does. With all the talks of uh, becoming accountable, and this is a, that word accountability gets thrown, out, uh, th- thrown around all the time. It's good to, to some certain extent, but they're really missing the point because we are already accountable to God. He's the one who made us, created us. And therefore, we are accountable to Him. What is Thy bidding, my master? It should not be just Darth Vader's inquiry, right? We we gotta got be asking the same thing. What is Thy bidding, my master? This passage tells us: recognize Christ's authority, and He will come back to give out His judgment on every single one of us. So trust Him and be faithful to His calling. Let's pray. Let's just go before the Lord and uh, just think about, the. Uh, let's consider, give it a thought. Uh.